You can picture this scene. Parents sit their children down in the living room, look down at the broken vase and ask, now how did this happen? There's finger pointing, accusations, the brother says the sister did it, the sister says it is the brother's fault. Now we move to the football team. They've won one game out of the first 10. The head coach is fired, the rest of his staff is out the door with him, and the quarterback is benched. We have a married couple who sits in their pastor's office. The wife points out the wrongdoing of her husband, and the husband points out the wrongdoing done by his wife. The project at work fails. One coworker says it failed because of their partner, and the partner throws up their hands and says, it wasn't my fault, it was theirs. Blame. The siblings blame each other. Different parts of the football team are blamed for their losses. Spouses blame each other. The work project partners shift the blame to each other. Blame and sin often go hand in hand. You probably have played the blame game once or twice in your life. We find blame is at the heart of our passage this morning. So our text for today is James chapter 1 verses 12 through 18, and, and as Pastor Herb read these verses, if you're pl- paying somewhat attention, they may not have seemed to go together. You may have wondered, how, how is this going to be our text for today? Well, we're going to see that they certainly uh, go together today. So our theme for this passage, James 1, 12 through 18, is who is and who isn't to blame for our draw to wrongdoing? who is and who isn't to blame for our draw to wrongdoing. Our passage begins with a verse that is is kind of transitional. It's a verse that concludes, and it's a verse that introduces. Look with me at James verse 12. That's how our passage begins. James 1 verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So this verse, in a way, it looks back to what has been said in James chapter 1 concerning trials and hardships, but at the same time or in another way, it looks forward to to the topic or the subject that's going to be talked about. How it looks back is that it continues the discussion of trials and hardships that James began really in the first verse, but especially in verse 2, in specifically offering this verse offers some encouragement. It gives them something to look forward to concerning the trials and the hardships that James has just talked about. And if we think about what James has already talked about, he's already spoken of a a reward or a result that comes in this life. And that's in verses 3 and 4. If you look with me there, James 1, verses 3 and 4, he's already talked about a reward or a result, and that is growing in godliness in this life. He says in verse 3 of James 1, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He speaks of a result in this life. A result that you'll get or a reward you'll get in this life. And now in verse 12, he's he's giving a reward or a result that we will receive in the life to come. Okay, he says, if you look at verse 12, he says in the beginning, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, under trial. Okay, especially today, and it's kind of a recent phrase that you often hear people say, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. 
And usually, if you think about why they say this, it's, it's not in relation to their suffering. But that's what James says here, that you are blessed or you're privileged or you're in a fa favorable position in relation to your suffering. And specifically, if you remain steadfast, meaning that you endure, you keep on going, you don't drop out, you remain firm in that suffering, firm in your faith, firm in your godly conduct. James is saying you are in a favorable position and then he tells us why. Look again at verse 12. We get this in the second half of this verse. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And then he says, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So before James gets to the reason, the reason why they're blessed, he says, for when he has stood the test, which goes along with this steadfastness. Standing the test means that he has shown his faith is genuine. He's proven that he has a relationship with the Lord because he hasn't turned from the Lord. He's continued to walk faithfully with the Lord despite his hardship. And then we get this reason. He's in a favorable position or the reason that he is blessed is that he will receive the crown of life. A crown was given to a victorious athlete back in James's day. Okay, if you think about a runner or a wrestler or a swimmer in our day, usually it is a, a medal that is placed around their neck. Back in James's day in the New Testament world, it was a crown was placed on the head of the winner, of, of the first place person. They've finished, they've won, and here this symbolizes us finishing and succeeding through the trials of life we will receive the crown of life. And life here means eternal life. James is saying our reward and our result for standing steadfast in trials and hardships is eternal life. Revelation 2, verse 10, we get a similar idea. It says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That is our result, our reward for enduring hardship on this earth. And the text guarantees it for the person that has a relationship with the Lord. The very end says, of verse 12, which God has promised to those who love him. Okay, God has determined, he guarantees that this will be your reward, this will be your result. So James is concluding his discussion on trials and hardships here from chapter 1, and he's showing in verse 12 that we're to look past the trials, we're to be motivated to keep on being faithful in our struggles by having our eyes set on a reward that we'll receive not in this life, but in the life to come, and that is eternal life. We will be victorious. We will have finished and receive the crown. We will have eternal life spent forever with God as our prize. That is why we are blessed in our trials. So verse 12 operates as a nice and even uplifting conclusion to, to the topic of trials that James has just been discussing. But as I said, it, it, it looks forward. It, it ushers into the topic that we're really going to spend our time on this morning, and that is temptation. Okay, we see this look forward specifically with the word trials in verse 12. 
This word in its verb form is used four times in the coming verses to speak of temptation or, or to speak of being tempted. So the word trials is used here in verse 12. Okay, the verb form of it is used four more times in the verses to come in our passage today. And we'll see in the coming verses that trials may be used to test our faith, to strengthen it, to prove it. But we also see how trials can tempt us to sin. So verse 12 stands, a, stands as a doorway out of the first 12 verses. And it's a doorway into a new discussion in the book of James concerning temptation and sin. And James talks specifically in the verses to come about who is to blame for temptation and sin. Who's really at fault when we're tempted? Who should be accused? As I said in the theme, he's discussing who is and who isn't to blame. James begins by saying, who isn't? As we see that God is not to blame for our being drawn to, drawn to evil. Look with me at verse 13. God is not to blame for our being drawn to evil. It says in verse 13, let no one when he is tempted, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So we've seen how God uses trials in our life to test our faith, how he uses them to strengthen our faith. So we can imagine someone who ends up sinning, how they could be led to say, God caused me to do this. He brought this trial. He brought this hardship. God caused me to sin. If he tests, then he tempts me too. If he brings trials into my life, then he is the ultimate cause of my temptation to sin. And James is saying here, no, this isn't the case. We can't say this about God. Douglas Moo in his commentary seeks to help us see the difference between testing and tempting. He says this, and I think it's helpful in seeing the difference between testing and tempting. He says, the Old Testament makes clear that God does test his people in the sense that he brings them into situations where their willingness to obey him is tested. God tested Abraham when he ordered him to sacrifice his son Isaac. He tested Israel by leaving them surrounded by pagan nations in Judges. And he tested King Hezekiah by leaving him to his own devices in his reception of the Babylonian envoys. But while God may test or prove his servants in order to strengthen their faith, he never seeks to induce sin and destroy their faith. I think that's a helpful differ differentiation between testing and tempting. And if you look again at, at verse 13, James explains his command that no one should accuse God of enticing him to sin. And that's by saying, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So James's argument is that God cannot be tempted to sin, so he wouldn't do this to others. God would not desire for us to be led to sin. The temptation to sin cannot be blamed on God. There's, there's something else that leads us into temptation, that leads us into, or that, that leads us into sin, and it's not God. Blaming God shows up in the very first sin that's presented to us in Scripture. So if you'd keep your finger here and turn with me back to the first book of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 3. 
And just to warn you, I would keep a bookmark in Genesis 3 as we move through our study, because we're going to be going back and forth between this James passage in Genesis uh, 3 and then sometimes the earlier chapters as we see some, some connections or illustrations within the very first sin of Scripture. Turn with me to Genesis 3, verses 8 through 13. And it's after Adam and Eve's sin. It's after they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I want to read for us what takes place and see how blame enters the picture. Genesis 3, and look with me starting at verse 8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And then here is the blame, starting in verse 12. The man said, The woman who you, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the blame game is played by Adam and Eve. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. But looking more closely... At Adam's blaming, he blames God. Look at verse 12. It says, The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me. It's God. God gave him the woman. He adds in there the fact that God gave him Eve. God created her. She came from him. So Adam, in a very subtle way, is saying, Yeah, I did wrong, but you were the ultimate cause, God. You gave me this sinful woman. Here in a subtle way, Adam blames God. So as I said, just put a bookmark here in Genesis 3. We're going to be back to it uh, to consider this further. Turn back to James chapter 1, and we see this blaming of God that James will have none of it here. He clearly shows that God is not to blame. And if God is not to blame, then who is? Who is ultimately to blame for our being drawn to sin and evil. Who's ultimately to blame? And maybe as you think about that question, you'd say, Satan. Satan. Well, that's not where James goes. Who is to blame? James says, yourself. Yourself. So move on to our next section with me and point, and that is you are to blame for being drawn to evil. You are to blame for your being drawn to evil. Look with me at verses 14 through 15. It says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So these two verses, we're going to take some time to consider them. These verses slow down the process of temptation and sinning for us. Okay, if you think about instant replay, if you watch any sports on TV, I think it, it comes up in almost every professional sport now, instant replay takes what happens in real time in a flash so quickly that you barely can see it or you can't see it at all. An instant replay slows it down. It allows you to go backwards and forwards so you can catch what actually happened. And here we have James slowing down 
The process of temptation and sinning that can happen just in a flash, can happen so quickly, you can miss the steps that lead to sin. He's slowing it down for us, just like instant replay. So first I want to point out that James shows that the path to sin begins with your own evil cravings. Look again at verse 14. It says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, and then I want to consider this phrase, by his own desire. By his own desire. He's saying that's where it starts. That's where it begins. That's where the blame goes to. This word desire here can speak of good desires, okay? can speak neutrally of good and bad desires. But more often than not in the scriptures, it's talking about evil cravings, sinful longings, lust. James is talking about desires that are not okay to long for. They're wrong. They're contrary to the word of God. They are forbidden and commanded against. These desires are part of our sinful nature. To bring it into maybe terms that speak to what we actually experience, they're the thoughts that just come out of nowhere. You don't know where they came from. You didn't intentionally think those thoughts or try to desire something, but they're present and they're wrong. They're not right. Temptation and sin start with those sinful impulses within our very own hearts. Second, we'll consider these evil cravings are attractive and pull us to act on them. Look again at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. When he is lured and enticed. The word lured speaks of being pulled or drawn towards something. The word entice speaks of arousing someone's interest. It's it's an attraction towards something. And these words, and especially the word entice, the second word there, is fishing language in the Greek. It gives the picture of a fisherman going out and fishing. The picture here is that our evil cravings are the hook, bait, and lure. Fishermen, so as you think about fishing and in fishing today, fishermen don't usually just go out and, and cast their line with just a hook on the end of it. But they attach bait, which looks like and, and sometimes uh, is fish food. Sometimes it's a worm or sometimes it's a plastic or rubber piece on the end of their hook. They, they attach bait. And also sometimes they attach what is called a lure, which is a shiny piece attached to the hook. And these things, both of these things, the bait and the lure on the end of a hook, catch the attention of a fish. The bait and the lure catch the attention of a fish. Usually the fish doesn't look too carefully. It doesn't inspect or investigate what is just thrown in the water. But they see the bait. They see the lure. It gets their attention. And it tries to take advantage of free food. This is the picture that James is creating here with these two words, and especially the word enticed, to speak of our evil desires, our sinful impulses, those longings and lusts and evil cravings that attract us. We might not be able to explain it, but we are pulled towards them. They seem so delightful. They seem like they would bring us great pleasure and happiness. We are aroused and attracted. If we're not careful, we will charge in just like that fish does to that bait. It's taken captive, 
It has fallen for the bait and has realized it too late. It is hooked. This is what James talks about in the next verse. He's going to show when we're hooked, when we're taken captive. And he leaves the fishing language behind and he moves on to another illustration. But here in our verse, James is saying that this is temptation. This is when you're tempted, when your evil cravings, your sinful impulses and feelings attract you. Something comes to mind that you're drawn towards. You see something that is attractive. This is when you are tempted. Hopefully you kept a bookmark or your finger there. Turn to Genesis 3. We get a great illustration of this from Adam and Eve, and specifically Eve. A few verses back from when we read, I want you to look at Genesis 3, and look with me at verse 6. We'll look at just the first half for now. Genesis 3 illustrates this temptation, this evil craving. It says in Genesis 3, verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So verse 6 talks about this evil craving. We see how it is luring her. It is enticing her. It says she saw that this would be tasty fruit to eat. It says the tree was good for food. It was attractive. It says it was a delight to her eyes. It would bring her wisdom, as it says and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. This is all talking about this evil craving. Eve has been tempted. So up to this point in Adam and Eve's story, she's tempted. This is temptation. And we'll come back to the second half of verse 6 in a little. But for a moment, I want us to consider some lessons from verse 14. Some lessons that we can learn concerning temptation from verse 14. First... We must realize that even though we may be a Christian, we still may have desires and longings that are sinful in nature. Thoughts may pop into your mind. We may have urges or we may feel ourselves drawn towards something that would be sin if we acted and gave into it. These may be unexplained. They may come out of nowhere. They may even be something that you're currently resisting. Okay, You don't want to do it. You're... you're going against it, but you feel that pull. Second, the second lesson is some of the language being used here. Okay, in our text, it says entice, but even some of the language I'm using, aroused, attracted, lust, it might make you think of sexual sins. And they are being talked about here, but all other sins are being talked about as well. They apply to this passage, gossip, Lying, anger, complaining, stealing, all sins can be applied to this passage. It's not just sexual sins. And as we think about all of these things, all of these sins, and we think about the evil cravings we have, it's good for us to realize, thirdly, that each of us is drawn towards certain sins. For each of us, it may be different. Okay, there may be certain sins, there may be certain cravings that you are greatly attracted to, that someone else isn't at all. It's not a struggle for them. It's not attractive to them at all. But they do have their own. So as we consider verse 14, there are specific evil cravings that each of us has. You know yours. There is struggle. And this verse and the next is going to apply to these. 
Two more lessons I want to give us from verse 14. The next is the point that James is making here, and that is that sin originates in us. God does not tempt us. God is not pulling us towards sin, but it is our own sinful nature, our own sinful hearts. We should realize how dangerous we are to ourselves. It's not some danger outside of us. But it is the danger within us that we should fear. It's our own sinful hearts that have the power to lure us into grievous sin. And then the last lesson I want to point out from verse 14, I think should be relieving. Right now you might be considering those evil cravings, those sinful impulses that you have, those longings that are wrong, those desires that if people knew that you had them would be horrified that you would have such a desire, you would have thought such a thing, and you might be feeling mighty guilty at this point. But you should be relieved because you have not sinned yet. As I've said, desires, thoughts, feelings may come to mind or you may be aroused and you did nothing to bring them about. It is what you do with them that determines if you sin. It's if you act on them, if you think on them, if you speak on them. Will you pursue them or shut them out? Will you resist them or will you seek to have that pleasure? Will you fantasize or get as far away from those cravings as possible? That is what determines sin. If we allow these desires to fester, if we charge in for the bait, if we act on lust, that is when we give in to temptation and we sin. That is when guilt should arrive. So we move on next to what James does as he follows the path of sin, and that is when these evil cravings are acted upon, that is when sin enters the picture. Look with me at verse 15, the first half of it. James 1.15, it says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So James continues this chain from desire to sin, and he shows that, as I've already said, It's only when you act on these sinful impulses, only when you act on these lusts that you sin. And he uses a baby's birth to picture this as he says, then desire when it has conceived. Okay, speaking of when a woman becomes pregnant, his point is that action has taken place. Something has been done with the desires and cravings, and it's not to back off, but it's to go forward toward them, to pursue them. And James continues the birth metaphor to say that when desires have conceived, he says it gives birth to sin. When sinful desires are acted upon, that is when someone has sinned. That's what the text says. When you give in to temptation, that is when you sin. So as we think about temptation and sin, they easily can be confused. You can start feeling guilty when you've done nothing wrong. Temptation is that draw to sin that you're sin- from your sinful nature. It's the natural attraction and arousal to sin. Sin is pursuing that attraction. It's going after what is wrong that you think will bring you pleasure. Okay, these are two different things, temptation and sin, but we can easily get them mixed up. And as James deals with sin and acting upon these evil cravings, I want us to move back to our illustration. If you look at with me at Genesis 3, 6, it says again, 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, here's the action. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Eve took action. The desire, the craving turned into action. She took and ate what God had commanded her not to. So a point of application at this point, another lesson, and that's that this is why we must take those initial cravings and attractions to evil so seriously, because they lead to sin. Before we know it, we go from temptation to sin, that quick. Temptation and sin are different, but temptation quickly becomes sin. We need to take those thoughts, those feelings seriously, when they rise within us. We shouldn't let them fester. We shouldn't entertain them in our minds. We shouldn't think on them any further. When we realize they're wrong, we need to get them out. We need to think on something else. We need to move on to another activity. We need to get up and go to a different room. When we're tempted to sin, we need to realize we are in danger. Get out of that danger zone quick. Resist the urges that are within you to move towards sin. Because very quickly and very easily, our text shows us that temptation can become sin. James finishes the chain he's begun, going from evil cravings to sin to now its result. If you look with me at James 1.15, the second half this time. James 1.15. It says, Then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. And here's the final result. In sin, when it has fully grown, brings forth death. So we get the birthing language once again as James speaks of sin growing up. Okay? It's growing up and maturing as a child. And then it says, and, and brings forth or gives birth to death. So sin is the, the child of temptation, and we find the grandchild of temptation is death. And again, looking back at Adam and Eve, so hopefully you've continued, and I'd ask you to continue to keep your finger there. Look with me now at Genesis 2. So the warning or, or the punishment that was told to Adam and Eve, this is going to happen if you sin. We find from the beginning of sin, that death has been the consequence. Look with me at Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. This is what God said before sin ever entered the world. This is what God said. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there's death. And then we get it again. Genesis 3.19. So just look a chapter over. Adam and Eve have sinned. And then God, he divvies out the punishment. And, and specifically to Adam, he says in Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So death has been the penalty for sin since the beginning of mankind. With the first sin, that was the result, death. 
sin brings forth painful and destructive consequences. That once pleasing desire can so subtly turn into a horrific scene. That lie can destroy a relationship. That act of adultery can tear apart a marriage. That irritable response can drive people away from you. We see where temptation leads when it's given into. So these two verses in James, verse 14 and verse 15, they show our part and not God's part in temptation. And additionally, as we think about verses 14 and 15 as a whole, they should be a warning. A warning to realize what is at stake when that passing thought comes into your mind. Okay, When you feel that pull towards that sin that you're attracted to or that you struggle with, when you feel being drawn to it or you're given a circumstance or a, a situation that would lend itself to you doing a certain thing, James seeks to show where this path leads and it's not pretty. He seeks to show that pleasure is not at the end of the tunnel. James seeks to show that what you think will bring you gratification will bring great pain. And James seeks to show what is initially attractive turns very, or can turn, very ugly. Let today be a warning to you of where temptation can lead. Don't pursue it. Don't act on it. You have been warned. So James has been showing who is to blame for temptation to sin. He's shown God is not to blame one bit. And then further, we've just seen and he's shown how we are the ones who bear full responsibility for temptation and sin. We cannot try to push it off onto someone else. But now as we think about this blame, and, and my next point, blame might seem like an odd word, but I want to see what James does blame God for. So we'll move on to verses 16 through 18. God is to blame for all that is good. That's where James brings us next, the passage that's very connected. We see that God is to blame for all that is good. And we see in verse 16 that James wants these Christians to have a correct view of God in relation to their temptation and sin. Look with me at verse 16, James 1:16. He says simply, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be deceived. Do not be led astray. And what he's saying here is he's bringing them back to verse 13, what he made very, very clear. And he's saying, don't be led astray in your thinking to think and to blame God for tempting you. He doesn't do it. You do. Temptation comes from you, not him. So this verse, verse 16, ushers us into the next two, which show us what God is to blame for. And we find it's the complete opposite of temptation and sin. We find that everything good has its source in God. Look with me at verse 17. It says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So God is the giver of good. God is good, and all that is good finds its source in him, is what James is saying. He's saying he created it if it's good. He's given it if it's good. And James says this here to stand in stark contrast to the accusation against God in verse 13. James says, no one can say God has tempted me, and here he gives another reason why. And that's because God only gives what is right, what is pure, and he's going to continue to develop this thought in the, the, next, the next phrases. We see that God does not lead us into wrongdoing, 
but leads us into good. And he gives an example of this, and that is God's creating the sun, moon, and stars. Look with me at James 1, verse 17. It says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And then he says, coming down from the Father of lights. Of lights. Okay, we've been using the early chapters of Genesis for an illustration. Our text didn't initially point us there, but now it actually does point us to Genesis when it says that God is the father of light. It's talking about him creating heavenly light. It's speaking of him being the creator of the sun, moon, and stars. And since you're there still, I'll I'll read for us where we see this in Genesis. Genesis 1, if you look with me there, Genesis 1, verses 14 and 19, we have God creating the heavenly lights. It says in Genesis 1, starting at verse 14, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So James gives an example here. Subtle, easily missed when he says, coming down from the Father of lights. He's talking about about God's creation and specifically his creation of the heavenly lights. And in verse 18 of Genesis 1, he said, And God saw that it was good. God is the creator. God is the giver of all that is good. And James goes on and he continues to talk about these lights but in so doing, he, he makes a point to show that it is not like God, God gives good sometimes, and then other times he does not. Okay, one moment he gives good, the next it's evil. James seeks to show this in the next phrase as he shows that God is consistently good. Look with me at James 1.17 and, and finishing out this verse now. It says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Then we have this, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Simply here, James is saying that God does not change. God is unchanging. God is constant. He's consistent. The word variation here speaks of change. Okay, he's saying, with whom there is no change. And then the phrase shadow due to change specifically relates back, relates to the fact that James says that God is the father of lights. Here by saying shadow due to change, he's speaking of the change that comes when the sun moves. Okay, the shadows that are created by the moving of the sun, the shadows that are cast, and then they're constantly shifting, constantly changing as the sun moves throughout the day. And James uses these heavenly lights that change and shift to say God is not like them. He is firm in his position. He does not move. And how this relates to the rest of the verse then is that James is showing God's good nature is constant. It doesn't depend what side of the bed he wakes up on. He doesn't flip a switch like we can. In one moment, he's for us. One moment, he's against us. One moment, he's giving good. And one moment, he's giving bad. 
but we see here that he doesn't waver between good and evil, but he is consistently good. James is seeking to make it abundantly clear that God has no part in sin and evil, temptation, or wrongdoing. This is the furthest thing from God. We should have no doubt, as we consider our last verse for this morning, we shouldn't have any doubt about this as we consider the last verse, and specifically, it is a second example of the goodness of God. So consider with me James 1.18, and we get a second, and I would even say a more powerful example of God's goodness. It was the lights, God gave sun, moon, and stars, that is good, but this is an even more powerful example of God's goodness, and even in his relation to sin, that God caused us to be born again. Look with me at James 1.18. It says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So we find the same word, or in the English it's, it's a phrase. We find the same word, or for us it's a phrase, that we had back with verse 15. And that's when he says, he brought us forth. It's the same word used in verse 15. It's just one word in the Greek. If you look at verse 15, James 1.15 said, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Okay, same word, same illustration, though used in a different way, that James is making a connection here. Okay, it was talking about giving birth. It continued the illustration of a woman being pregnant and giving birth to a child where, where James is trying to show the connection between desire, sin, and death. And now James uses this, this same language or same illustration of giving birth, but this time it's in relation not to temptation and sin, but, to, but it's in relation to God giving us a spiritual birth. Okay, it's talking about our spiritual state, and we see this more specifically at the end of verse 18. If you look with me there, he says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. And then here we see it's talking about something spiritual. It says that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, by first fruits, or the first of his creatures, James is not talking about Physically, he's not talking about being born physically first. Okay, we can see this logically here. But rather, he's talking about a new or a second or spiritual birth. And we have the same language with Paul. First fruits. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul said, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So James is talking about here, he's talking about salvation from sin. He's talking about the transformation of a believer who once did not believe and now they're brought to believe. It's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 is talking about when it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. By James using this language of first fruits, he's talking about a Christian being a new creation, that they've been born a second time. It's what Jesus talked with Nicodemus in John 3 about, being born again. So here this birth language is used for a second time in James, 
The first instance spoke of giving birth to sin and then death. James said God is not to blame for this. And now James shows what birth God is to blame for, and that is our spiritual birth, our being saved from our sins. And we see God is being blamed for this. God gets full credit for this at the beginning of James 1.18. James says, of his own will, he's given full credit for God, to God for this. It's something God decided. He says it's of his own will. It's something God chose, God determined. To read another passage that's familiar, I think, to many, that makes this point, but a little bit more fully, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, John 1, 12 through 13, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, who gave the right to become children of God, who were born, talking about this spiritual birth, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. You're not born again because of the family, the certain family that you were born into. You're not born again by your own choosing. You're not born again by even someone else's influence. But James and John, they're saying it's solely the work of God that we can experience this new birth, this spiritual transformation in our lives. And then just to deal with the last phrase that we haven't dealt with yet, James gives us the tool that God brings about this spiritual birth, this, this being born again with, and that is the word of God. As he says in James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He's talking about the word of God, the message of salvation, the gospel message God uses. It's his tool, it's his instrument. As it's shared, as we hear it heard, God works through it to wake up a dead heart. To him. So James has been arguing God has no part in our temptation, no part in our sin. God is not to blame for it. And here he shows the opposite is true. God is not to blame for temptation and sin, but God is to blame for what allows us to work against temptation and sin. God is to blame for a life that no longer is enslaved to sin and headed for death, but a life that can now resist sin a life that is headed for true eternal life. That is what God is to be blamed for. So our passage ends, I would say, on an extremely comforting note. As I said, kind of in the middle, you might start feeling guilty. You might be starting uh, to really feel the weight of your sin. But it ends on a comforting and empowering note, and that is that though we may still be enticed to sin, though those thoughts and, and attractions toward sin are a reality, God has caused us to be born again, completely transforming our lives so that we look at temptation and we look at sin in a different way, so that we're strengthened, empowered by God to fight and battle against sin. That's where James leaves this discussion off at. So as you think about the verses we've dealt with, okay, we've worked through a lot this morning. So just trying to bring it all together, we learn that as we experience temptation, even as we've fallen into sin and are reaping the consequences, we have no right, we have no reason to blame God. Rather than shifting the blame onto God, we need to own our sinful nature and recognize that we are to blame realizing how wicked, how sinful our hearts are, and in so doing, we need to realize what God has done, what he is to be blamed for, 
And that is that he has so transformed our lives so we're not consumed with, so we're not stuck with temptation and sin. But he's changed us so that we can recognize our sin and pursue a life apart from it. A passage such as this should drive us to God in our temptation, in our temptation and sin, not blaming him for it, but instead we should pray the prayer that David prayed after committing adultery with Bathsheba and killing her husband. He prayed this in Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. May this be our prayer out of our passage in James this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we have a passage that, that talks about temptation and sin. And, and Lord, I think if each and every one of us is being honest with ourselves, we know this is a reality. We know this is something we struggle with daily, even hour by hour, minute by minute, being tempted, being pulled, being drawn towards certain sins. Lord, we realize that sometimes this can be a, a great struggle, a great battle. Sometimes we can have good times with it, and, and sometimes, Lord, we may fail. We may fall into sin. Lord, we have a passage this morning that, that teaches us that you are not to blame for it. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to, to really understand this. And in our sin and in our temptation that we wouldn't go to you and accuse you. But we'd realize that the danger is within our very hearts. Lord, help us to grasp this passage. And if any of us does not know you as our Lord and Savior, to realize that you work through your word. You work through the gospel message that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. And that we can have a life that is striving to, to not live in sin or be consumed in our sin, but living for you. Lord, for those Christians here, Lord, I pray that you would help us to realize the inner work that you've done in us, that you've transformed us, and you've given us the power and the strength to fight against sin. Lord, I pray that you would create in us a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within us. And in your name I pray, amen.